one-dimensional when I started. When all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So that's what I did. I hammered everything all the time. And you know what? You get real successful doing that, but the people you work with don't get the best experience. And at the end of the day, you realize that you're gonna die if you're gonna do that for 30 years. You just cannot feed their motivation. So what I did learn over this time was I needed to add to my toolbox. If I deal with an athlete or a situation now, there are any number of ways that I can deal with it, right? I have, you know, logic. I have uh, pats on the back. I have the hammer if I need it. There are some kids that gotta have a sledgehammer every now and then to get their attention. But you back that up with some positive feedback and then they get really good. So I think I've just expanded my toolbox of techniques so that now I can adapt them to almost any situation. You know, what you get when you're a young coach, you probably have like two answers to every question and one of them's right and one of them's wrong. You're like 50-50, right? So you either get it 100% right or you're just wrong. Whereas, you know, now I probably have three or four solutions to everything that come up. Some better than others, some fit one kid better than another. And I think that's what I've improved on the most. I think my biggest flaw, to be perfectly honest, is I didn't take care of myself along the journey until later. Joined by Bob Bowman, head coach of Arizona State Swimming, coach of 23-time gold medalist, 28, I guess 28 overall medals. Michael Phelps, previously led University of Michigan, swimming, diving, as well as the CEO and head coach of uh, North Baltimore Aquatic Club. But Bob, what I want to get into now, we've, we're talking a lot about coaching and leadership when times are tough. Times are tough out there right now. So let's just start with the basic of, can you be a great coach, but not a great leader? No, <laughs> because at the end of the day, it's about, I think leadership is really about knowing, working with people, right? And I don't think you can be a great coach without knowing how to work with people. It just doesn't happen. And, and talk to me about working with people. What's that actually mean? Well, it means getting to know them, building relationships, right? That's, you know, people ask why Michael and I, you know, were together for so long. So we had a very strong relationship that was built over time. We understood each other very well. We were 100% honest with each other all the time, which is very difficult to do. But, you know, uh, I think that just leads to a, environment where you're you can work together and go for some big goals and you're, you're sort of safe to fail in that you know and I don't think that unless you establish good relationships it you can be a good coach and you talked about with you and Michael being honest I, I had written down balancing respect and disagreement yeah for sure and you know we're really <laughs> pretty passionate people, so I'm sure there's some ways we could have done all of that better, right? And it was also this very weird dynamic where Michael started out at age 11, right, and ended up <laughs> 34, or whatever it was. Incredible. And uh, it was um, so you know he was changing through the whole thing, and I was trying to grow. And in the beginning, it was me just saying do this, and he would do it. And then by the end, we were really working together. It was like a partnership. So I think you have to kind of know your clientele, know where they are and what they need. That's a big part of it. And you mentioned age 11. So as a coach slash leader, identifying talent, I mean, it's hard to identify at the age of 11, but uh, I guess what, it, what did you see in Michael at 11 and also just you, overall for you 
uh, talk about identifying talent, which you have to do now, I'm sure, on a daily basis with high school kids potentially sure. coming into college? Well, you know, what I've learned as a college coach for many years now is that I don't necessarily want the fastest swimmer. I want the right one for our program, hmm. right? Because every place isn't the right place for everybody. So people who come to us, they're going to have to want to put in the work on a daily basis, have expectations placed on them on a daily basis, you know, be told things they don't want to hear, which is a big part of it. Because we believe that feedback is, is so important and that the way that you give feedback and the way they receive it's important. So we're trying to find people who fit into that mold. And if they have the, you know, some level of swimming talent, we can take somebody like that and move them to the next level, which is what we want to do. And that's very much similar with Michael, right? Hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, let me jump in there before yeah. you do, Michael. I'm curious with that philosophy. Is that a philosophy because it's a... Um, you're in an educational institution in college versus a straight Olympic team or swim team where at the end of the day, time gets you the ribbon, or is that actually a philosophy of coaching? No, it's a philosophy of coaching and it's how we end up with the best swimmers. I've had a lot of great swimmers come to me, Olympic gold medalists, right? I've had several who came into our system and did not fit in with what we were doing and it didn't work for them. And it's my fault for bringing them in. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not like they didn't want to do well or we didn't want to do well, but it's just like not a good fit for where they have been previously to what the way we run our system. And our system is, is very, uh, I don't know, it's organized and regimented. And if you're kind of don't fit into that, it's going to be harder for you to succeed. You know, so. so sounds I, like Herb. Sounds like Herb for us to get the right people. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard that before from Herm and Ray and others within that, within yeah. that program too. All right. So go back to Michael, identifying talent and seeing something that young. Well, he was easy. Number one, he won every race. So you knew he was a good swimmer against kids his age. So we had that part, but what really struck me about Michael was he had an incredible competitiveness, even at a young age. Like when you saw him race, it wasn't like he was just out there having fun. He was serious about it. And he wanted to win. And if he didn't, he would pitch a fit, which obviously is not a great kind of, we had to work on that a little bit. <laughs> but in the beginning, you could see whether he's playing with his friends just on the playground. Cause we had a, our facility was like a family facility, right? Michael would come spend all day and then he would have practice. So I saw him all day long out running around, you know, getting in trouble with the lifeguards, playing with his friends, doing everything he did, but everything he did, he was competitive. And it became clear that he hated to lose. And I think that you will find that the very top performers, you know, the Michael Phelps, the Tiger Woods, the Serena Williams, the people at the very top, they absolutely cannot tolerate losing. They actually hate losing way more than they love winning. <laughs> so is it, is it harder to coach that? Is it harder to coach the Tiger, the Michael the, versus yeah. another type of uh, Yes. I think it is in some ways because um, they're very hard on themselves, right? We're already hard on them, right? We're going to tell you everything you did wrong. <laughs> That's kind of my job. Identify where we can improve. And those are the things you didn't do well. But people like Michael, like once we were together, probably five years, Michael would come up and give me everything he did wrong in a race. I wouldn't have to say it. 
He would be like, I should have hit that turn better. She could have taken five more kicks. And the great thing was we had worked on that. So he learned some things to understand that. So, but I think the really high performers, you have to kind of balance how hard you're going to be on them because they're very hard on themselves, you know? Mm. And so I had another one written down and you lead right into it, a balancing leading versus listening. Um, and it sounds like they're from a high performer. There's a lot of listening and probably evolves the way you're leading back to them. A hundred percent because, you know, they already have the motivation, right? High performers are already motivated. You don't have to spend time doing that. I have some people on my team who are talented and relatively low performing because they have motivational issues. And I can deal with that. You know, we can goal set and make all that happen. But when you're dealing with like a Michael, he's very in tuned to where he wants to go, what he wants to do. And it's my job to just kind of help him navigate the path, right? And it's really important when things don't go well, right? Something happens, you get an injury. There's always going to be something, right? You know, we had several things that kind of like came up in our career, like roadblocks. And you just kind of figure out at that point, that's when you're really leading those guys. Because you're like, let's just kind of, I'll give you a perfect example. So in 2012, Michael wasn't in the best of shape for the Olympic Games in 2012. Everybody knows that. He'll be the first to tell you that. Um, I had wanted him to swim the 400 IM, which is the most demanding event in swimming. And I had mainly wanted him to swim that event, number one, because I just stupidly thought he could get some kind of medal regardless if he was moderate shape. But also because if he had that on his plate, he would do enough training to get the other events taken care of, 200 fly, all those other things, because he swam a big program. And I remember after the 400 IM where he got fourth, right, no medal, which was crazy, um, he came up and he started going through the list of things about, I was like, you, I, first thing I said was your breaststroke, you've got to change something about your timing. You need to do this. And he started launching into this. I know I didn't do the training. I'm not in shape. Da, 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 da. And I finally had to say, Hey, look, there's a whole long list of things that we didn't do. Right. But first on the list right now is breaststroke. Cause you got 200 IM coming up, which you want a gold medal in, by the way, um, one that for the third time and broke an Olympic record, but it's, you kind of have to focus them on something right now that we can work on. And once I did that, he's like, okay. So we spent a couple of days, we focused on breaststroke. Then he had a pretty good, you know, relay swims. He broke some records in terms of medals. One, he had a really good hunter fly where he kind of came from behind again and won a gold medal. So it, it kind of, you have to just kind of get their attention and get them focused on something productive. That's what I think these high performers will sometimes lose because if they get upset about something, uh, they're not used to being upset about things at big competitions, right? Because they're used to winning all the time. But if it goes wrong, you have to kind of redirect them into something that's going to be positive next time out. And with the swim team outside of a relay, you've got a lot of individual performers yes. out there. But you also have when you're a coach when you were a coach of the Olympic team, but also now from a college program, but you also have a team. So what yeah. about the the differences of coaching one person to succeed to their best, but also fitting into the whole program? Well, I think the one thing that Michael would tell you too is being part of a team like Team USA or the, your training group, you're dependent on that in swimming. You can't do it by yourself. There is just no way that even Michael, somebody that good, and me could just go somewhere by ourselves and swim and make it work because it's too hard, it's too boring, 
and it's just you would go crazy. You have to have a group of people to train with, people who will challenge you in training, people you can talk to, you know, have a relationship with. So the team aspect of our sport is very important. Um, you know, in college, it's a little easier, right? Because you put it together because you have your Sun Devils. We want to, you know, the school, you're swimming for your school, those kind of things. On the national team, it's Team USA. So what you do is you try to focus that group on the bigger goals and on helping, mainly helping each other get better every day. I think that's the key for me. I demand that every person on our team actually do three things. Number one, show up. And I don't mean physically, although I do, but I mean be there, be present, right? When you're here, be 100% here, focused on what we're doing. Number two, do things correctly. If we ask you to do something, do it at the highest level you can, because in our sport and really any sport, there's a misconception that people rise to the occasion at the big event, right? That somehow they're going to summon some motivation or energy and rise up to this big level under the pressure of the Olympic Games. This couldn't be less true. <laughs> what happens is you fall to your worst technical level in training. That's why training has to be so high. You don't, you don't rise to your top level. You fall to your lowest level. So your basement has to be really high. Number three, what they have to do is honor your teammates with your efforts. Because at the end of the day, it's more about your individual effort and how that carries over to the group. And if you do those three things, you're going to have a successful team, and then you're going to have successful individuals within that team. What, what year uh, did you first start coaching? 1986. So <laughs> 35 years-ish. Yeah, yeah. What, what, what were you like as a coach or a leader then? Oh, and, and what has been, I don't want to call it a flaw, but mm -hmm. what's the biggest change that you've made of your leadership style in 35 years? Uh, well, first of all, I was one dimensional when I started. And, you know, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So that's what I did. I hammered everything all the time. And you know what? You get real successful doing that. But... The people you work with don't get the best experience. And at the end of the day, you realize that you're going to die if you're going to do that for 30 years. You just mm -hmm. cannot feed their motivation, right? So what I did learn over this time was I needed to add to my toolbox. So I have a, if I deal with an athlete or a situation now, there are any number of ways that I can deal with it, right? I have, you know, logic. I have... Uh, pats on the back. I have the hammer if I need it. There's some kids that got to have a sledgehammer every now and then to get their attention, right? But you back that up with some positive feedback and then they get really good. So I think I've just expanded my toolbox of techniques so that now I can adapt them to almost any situation. You know, what you get when you're a young coach is you, you know, you probably have like two answers to every question and one of them's right and one of them's wrong. You're like 50-50, right? So you either get it 100% right or you're just wrong. Whereas, you know, now I probably have three or four solutions to everything that come up. Some mm -hmm. better than others. Some fit one kid better than another. And I think that's what I've improved on the most. I think my biggest flaw, to be perfectly honest, is I didn't take care of myself along the journey until later. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that when I am physically fit I coach way better when I give myself some breaks I coach way better 
you know, we went with Michael and it kind of became this thing that we didn't want to stop, but we went six years in a row of training 365 days, every birthday, Christmas morning, you name it, we're at the pool. And while at that time, I don't think I would change it because it was sort of a formative time for him and we were both into it, but yep. you can't carry that level of intensity for uh, 30 years. So I think I would have probably taken care, a little bit more care of myself along the way. And I wouldn't have kind of like, I kind of crashed there in the, when Michael did, we kind of crashed <laughs> between 2008 and 2012, we both just kind of crashed. So uh, that's as, what I as, as you added the toolbox, it stuff into the toolbox, uh, what other coaches or leaders did you, peers, role models, buddies, uh, did, did you learn from or, or flaws or positives of, of how yeah. they were doing it that you added uh, some of the ways into your toolbox? Sure. Well, you know, I've always studied football because I love football. So Nick Saban's a big influence on me, right? Uh, you know, my, I would say that my coaching philosophy is the process is more important than the outcome. And it always has been, but just he kind of crystallized it for me. It's like, you know, we can all sit around and think about a gold medal all day long, and that doesn't make us very likely to win one. You know what I mean? You have to think, break it down into steps. So what are we going to do today that will lead to tomorrow, that will lead to next year, that will lead to five years, that will lead to a gold medal? And those are the things we control because the outcomes are largely based on what other people do, right? <laughs> you know, I can just have somebody as ready to swim as they can be, and then if they do that, we'll be happy with it, whether they're first, second, or third. Um, if you want to be the best in the world, you just set your standards really high. And, you know, our goal with Michael was to, um, and it actually kind of worked, was like, you know, I wanted him so good a year before the 2008 games that he could be 20% less in Beijing and still win every event. And he was probably not quite as good in Beijing as he was the year before, but that's a whole lot of pressure, right? He was carrying a lot of different things than he did there. So that's part of it. Um, you know, Belichick, I like everybody to do their job. You know, I think they had the quote with the Giants. Uh, it's um, blame no one, expect nothing, do something. We're kind of big on that. You know, just be responsible for your swimming, do your job, and don't expect some kind of special treatment. Uh, one of the things that I learned from a famous Australian coach, Bill Sweetenham, who's been sort of a role model for mine, is, you know, we try to get the best possible performance in the worst possible conditions. I don't want my guys to have some fancy pool every day that's the nicest in the world and somebody giving them a towel when they come in. I want it to be tough. That's why I think our, you know, if you go back and read the talent code, great book by my friend, Dan Coyle, he's, he studied hot spots of talent all over the world. And he said he would have put our, our pool in if he had done it, known about us sooner. But, you know, I, I think somebody said, uh, Amy Shipley wrote that our uh, our pool in Baltimore is like an underfunded YMCA, right? And I love that because it was a tough environment. They had to that's be interesting. And that's what you have to do with everybody, I think. I think if you kind of try to prepare the path for the child, you don't get very good results. Prepare your child for the path. There's a parenting hmm. thing for it. Yeah, that's interesting because I was uh, really one of the final questions was going to be about how do you evolve or get better when times are good? And it sounds like a bit of even that mentality of what that the, the physical environment of that pool for you 
was part yeah. of that. Time, times were good. You could have, you probably could have had resources. Oh to yeah, we could have gone that. to any place in the world. And uh, we wanted <laughs> that environment because that's where the performances happen. Um, you know, the hardest thing to do is survive success, right? It's easier when you, I don't want to say it's easier. It's hard when you fail, but that's where you learn everything, right? When you have a failure, that's where your is your opportunity to learn the most about what you're doing, to rethink what you're doing, to kind of reinvent whatever you're doing. When you succeed, you just kind of pat yourself on the back and keep doing what you're doing, right? You don't want to change anything because you think it's going well. But the reality is nobody stays the same. You're either getting better or you're getting worse on a daily basis. So we always just try to get a little bit better and keep that kind of ball moving down the field. Um, so I think we found that the successes are kind of harder to deal with than the failures in many ways. And so let me close with just present day with COVID and Olympic postponement and probably college swimming postponement. Uh, how, how do you lead when you're often virtual yeah. um, and, and you're not, you know, on a pool deck with somebody all the time um, and keep them motivated for something that could be tomorrow or could be a year from now? Yeah. Uh, well, it's difficult. We've been really lucky that we've been able to train our people now since August. You know, we did not really all summer. They were on their own and everything was kind of virtual. Um, I just kind of act like it's going to happen, right? <laughs> you have to act as if it's happening, whether it is or not. But what it's really done is really focus us back to the what we're doing today, right? Nothing tomorrow is guaranteed. Somebody can come in here and say, hey, guess what? You're shut down for two weeks. So what we do is the very best job we can do today, enjoy our time together, and then move on to the next step tomorrow. And I think that's really helped everybody a little bit. Kind of worrying about what's going to happen in six months when we have no control over it is a waste of everybody's time and motion and emotion. So we uh, have just tried to focus very much on the, you know, now. Everybody can read Eckhart Tolle, The Power of Now. Peter Carlisle gave that to me. Changed my life. <laughs> so, you know, right now is what we can, where we live. So we try to stay there. And that's The Bond. There's plenty more to come.